Going to. Not on. On. Stand down here this evening. Tonight we are going to talk about the hymn that we just sang, A Wonderful Savior. I suspect everybody here knew that song. You've probably sang it many times. I had this, I had the hymns written down a few months ahead of time as to what I'm going to do. And I told Kevin, it dawned on me this week that I had not actually told the one person who really needed to know, that was the song leader, that we were going to sing this song. So I texted him. It seemed like it was, <laughs> it seemed like it was Friday night. It must have been earlier in the week than that, I think. But I texted him and said, we're going to sing this I don't know if I said, do you know it, or if I just told you to know it, one or the other, but, uh, but, but, he, but he knew it. But it's a wonderful Savior. Uh, I was looking for uh, a title. We got the old English with the U in the end of Savior. Uh, not, spelled like, not spelled like that in your hymn book or in uh, our English, but a few, of the, uh, a few of the English words have a U right there. So uh, this is what we'll be talking about uh, this evening. In your song book, I think it's number 508. I believe, I could be wrong about that, uh, but I believe it's 508. If you look at the words that we just sang, um, we're going to look at each of these four verses tonight, kind of what they mean, uh, what we can learn from them. But one of the things that we're not really going to look at too much is the chorus of it. Uh, but in part because Tom read the chorus of that just a moment ago. When Tom read from Exodus, he actually read almost the entirety of the course. And I don't know how many of you thought, as you were reading this, thought, ah, those, that sentence sounds familiar. And then we popped up the song. It's like, well, there it is right there. But we're going to be talking about this song. But if you look down at the bottom of this hymn, you'll see a woman by the name of Fanny Crosby, I believe, uh, was uh, the writer. We're going to talk a little bit about her because I think this is the 17th or the 18th hymn sermon that I've done, and I think this is the first one where she was the author, which may seem odd because she was such a prominent, prolific songwriter. But her name was Frances Jane Crosby. She was born in 1820, so she would be a little older than 200 years old if she was alive today, but about 50 miles north of New York City. Now, to be in New York City where she will spend almost the entirety of her life, but at six months old, she caught a cold that inflamed her eyes and led to blindness. At least that's the story that was told. Because there's also some thought that she may have already been blind, but how do you know if a six-month-old is actually blind or not? But nonetheless, whether it was six months or whether it was from birth or somewhere in between, from that point forward, she was completely blind. There are pictures you can find of her and her siblings, and she has on... The best way that I would describe them is a pair of glasses that just sort of almost look like swimmer's goggles. They're real tight on the eyes because she wasn't able to see. And she had, uh, had this blindness from a very young age. She was a member of the 6th Avenue Bible Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. But I want you to listen to me for just a second. Because she also attended the Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims in Brooklyn Heights, New York. She attended the Trinity Episcopal Church in New York, the Northwest 
Dutch Reformed Church and the Central Presbyterian Church in New York. Essentially, she went to all of them. And so her time was occupied with attending services. In Lancaster, near where the old uh, railroad depot is, there was a building that sat there, and about four different congregations in Lancaster met there on Sundays. And so you had organizations that met at 9 and at 11 and at 1. They used this one building. It's called the Union Church Building. And different congregations met there because they didn't have their own building. We think about buildings today, but that wasn't that common, you know, a couple of you know, hundred or so years ago. But this woman wasn't just staying in the same building. She was going from this building to that building. The reason why is she seemed to be, even though she was blind, seeking out opportunities to sing, to worship, to study, whatever else it might would be. She spent much of her non-church attending time in the Bowery Mission. I don't know how many of you have been to New York City, but Maria, this will all sound very familiar to you, but the Bowery has, it's probably not so much now, but it used to be for a long time, one of the more rougher areas that you'd see. It was not too far from where people would get off the boats, and you had a lot of poor folks, you had a lot of immigrants, and you had a lot of people that were uh, in dire straits. Well, she worked there in this area of Manhattan. And she worked with people who were down on their luck. That was her going to focus. Now think about that for a second. Somebody who's been blind their whole life, we would sometimes constitute that as maybe being down on their luck. But she didn't, she didn't seem to have a problem with that. She was trying to help others who perhaps had issues themselves. She worked with people who had difficulties in their life. And she worked to try and provide both physical and spiritual help for them. This song, A Wonderful Savior, was a collaborative effort, and you may notice this at the bottom of the hymn as well, with William Kirkpatrick, whose name shows up quite often in the hymn book as well. And the story goes, from what I read, that Kirkpatrick came to her with the tune. And Crosby had been studying Exodus chapter 33 that Tom read there just a moment ago when Moses was safeguarded by the cleft of the rock and she wrote the hymn from that starting point. And so that's what she was studying is sort of what was in her mind at the time. Some of you maybe can relate to this, whatever you just read or whatever you've just been watched on TV or whatever you've just been studying from the Bible or something like that, that's kind of fresh in your mind. And you might tell somebody about it. And it seems like that's what she does as well. So she took this tune and she wrote this song, which we sing today, A Wonderful Savior. So we're going to talk tonight about this hymn, A Wonderful Savior. See, I didn't put the U on this. This is my writing. The previous page was not my writing. So it's a slightly different thing right there. Jesus is our wonderful Savior. And we'll start with that here this evening. This is why I came. I've got several verses that we'll look at, and if you want to flip through them, you can. I'll be reading from them as well. But in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, we read that she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. But then the second part of that verse says, and he will save his people from their sins. Okay, That word save shows up in the first chapter of Matthew chapter 1. And Jesus, born of Mary, would come forth to save his people from their sins. And that's where we get the word Savior from for Jesus. And Jesus' salvation was his purpose. But now Fanny Crosby wrote 
a wonderful Savior. So why is this wonderful? Well, think about the things that you would describe as wonderful. All right? What about a cake or a pie or something like that? You ever describe that as wonderful? Okay. What about a movie that you watch? You ever describe that? That was a wonderful movie that we saw. Or maybe an evening that you spent out and about with some friends or uh, some neighbors or whatever. We describe things as wonderful with the most pleasant sense, right? That is the things that we enjoy. And so when we describe Jesus as a Savior, she describes him as a wonderful Savior. But why? Well, to start with, it was undeserved. Flip over to 1 John chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it was undeserved. That's 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now, you might have seen some words in there that looked familiar. If you go all the way back to John chapter 3, verses 16, John 3, 16 says an almost similar thing to what we just read in 1 John chapter 4. John 3, 16, right? We know it, for God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his only begotten son that we should, not, uh, that, that we should have eternal life. And so it was an undeserved thing. That's why we would maybe call Jesus wonderful. And it did, it was undeserved, but even undeserved, it saved us from the wrath of God. I want you to think for just a second. Go back to when you was young. And go back to when you did something really stupid. And you knew that you had to tell mom and dad. Was telling mom and dad the hard part? Or was the build up to having to tell mom and dad the hard part? For most of us, it was probably the build up. Because we have no idea what they're going to say, right? We know we've done wrong. They're going to be mad at us. I just don't want to tell them. Sometimes, when we told them, it might not have been as bad. Well, when we think about this salvation... If mom and dad said, look, I know you messed up. I realize you're sorry. Let's just put it behind us. That's a big relief, right? Well, what do we look at right here? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, it saves us. Jesus, is, uh, Jesus being that Savior saved us from the wrath of God. Look at Romans, uh, Romans eight or 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, what does Christ do? We know what it is there, right? It says Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The point of this is, is that what he did for us helps us being saved from wrath. Now, if we think about that then, that's a wonderful thing. Because we've all messed up, right? We've all done wrong, but God's Son, Jesus, coming to earth and dying for us, saves us from that wrath. And so that's a comfort, because eventually, just like we had to go appear before our mom or dad, we'll have to appear before the Father in heaven, right? And we'll have to answer for what we've done. But it's comforting to know that what Jesus has done can cover up those things that we have done. Number two, he takes away our... Now, there's more to this song 
than what we're going to cover. We're only looking at four things, but you could have looked at a whole lot more than that. But he takes our burdens away. Jesus offered to trade burdens with us. Years ago, I was in high school, and we went to Minnesota. Me and Dad, my dad's brother Dave and his son Chris, and then three friends of ours that lived in Minnesota. And we were going on this week-long canoe trip in which we would paddle the canoe, we would fish, we'd catch fish and we'd eat them, and then tomorrow uh, we'd have a camp out, campsite, and tomorrow we'd load up and we'd go to another spot. You may have heard Minnesota described as the land of 10,000 lakes. However, not all of those lakes are connected by waterways. Sometimes you want to be in this lake, but you're in that lake, and you've got to carry your stuff over. Well, I guess they viewed me and Chris as high school and college-age boys because we carried a lot. And my dad and my uncle, the problem was, there was this one guy who didn't seem to carry anything. And so we'd haul these canoes, and we'd haul these backpacks, and pots and pans, and I think they brought a TV at one point. We was carrying everything we owned when we would go through. But you'd look over, and the other guy's carrying a fishing pole. Now that doesn't seem fair, right? My burden was a little larger than his burden. And he wasn't even paddling. He was just sitting in the canoe fishing while we was doing all the paddling. He was, he, he was, a, he was a taker, not a maker, I guess, for us right then. But while I'm carrying that big pack, and he's carrying a fishing pole, if he had said, would you like to trade burdens? I probably would have said yes. Because all of us would rather carry a fishing pole than a 30 or 40 pound bag with all the stuff for the week piled up in there, right? Well, what Jesus offers to us is to trade burdens with us. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. This is not new to anybody, but Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And he said he would give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so what Jesus is offering there is to trade. He says, I'll carry the heavy part. I'll go to earth. I will, die, I will live and I will be sacrificed and I will die and I will go through that hanging on the cross and you carry my part of the deal. In a sense, he said, let me carry the 50-pound pack. You carry the fishing pole. But a lot of times for us, we don't want to carry the pole either, right? We kind of want to toss it down, let Jesus do all of that work. But Jesus bore our sins in his body, and his death satisfied that justice. Now, second, from the hymn we read that God upholds the righteous. This is Old Testament, Psalm chapter 63, verses 6 through 8. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. What David is saying right there is what we referenced this morning as well in his time of meditation. But he's saying that I'm going to stay right there behind you. The righteous can't be moved. God will uphold them. God will preserve 
the righteous. Think about what it means to preserve something. How many of you have ever been to a nature preserve before? Have you ever been to one of those? The point of that is to keep it a little bit wooded, to keep animals there. Because if we're not careful, we'll tear the whole thing down and we'll build a hundred houses and we won't have that anymore. To preserve means to keep it as is. Some of you may preserve fruits or something like that. You put them in a cellar or some basement or something during the, uh, during the, during the winter or whatever. That way you've got something that you raised during the summer, but you can eat it during the winter because you can't go out and grow that stuff when it's zero degrees outside. God would preserve them. He would keep them through the difficult times. God will give the righteous strength to overcome challenges and to accomplish goals. Number three, filled with divine fullness. Let's start about first with something that I think we might have even mentioned this morning. But we talked about this morning when we have our private devotions, one of the things that we should do is to be thankful for what we have. Well, another way of saying that is to count our blessings, right? When I said, write down all the things that you're thankful for, give me 10 of them. We all said we could come up with 10. Well, in a sense, what we're doing there is counting our blessings, right? Paul mentions Thanksgiving in almost every prayer. Almost every time you see Paul pray, he will use the word Thanksgiving or some variation of that word Thanksgiving, thankfulness, counting of blessings, whatever it might would be. James says in James 1.17 that all blessings come from where? comes from God, right? And so if we're counting our blessings, if we're listing all of the things that we're grateful for, we're thankful for, James is telling you all of those things came from who? God. So what we're doing is we are thanking God for what we have. Ephesians 1.3 says every spiritual blessing is in Christ. In Christ, we said a moment ago, come and live and die, sacrifice himself for us. So when we say we are filled with a fullness, a divine fullness, we have that life, we have that, excuse me, we have those blessings from God and we have those spiritual blessings in Christ sort of filling us up as well. Now, Paul wrote about this in Colossians 2 verses 9 and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him, we are made full or complete. We like to be made full or complete, right? How many of you have ever ate a big meal and about five minutes later you think, could you use something sweet? Have you ever made that comment? It's almost as if we've got this whole bowl and we filled it almost to the top. But we need one more thing added in there, right? How many of you have ever said the opposite? <laughs> if I ate another bite, I'd bust. You ever said that? We can all relate to that. So we know what this completeness or this fullness is. Well, we read from Colossians that it's through him, it's through Jesus, it's in him that we are made full or complete. So if we list all the things that we have, all the things that we're thankful for, but Jesus isn't on that list, we're kind of like the person that says, I could use a little something, a little something extra right there. I'm not quite full. Jesus is that redeemer for us. First Peter 1 verses 18 and 19, the price was paid by Jesus, right? Therefore, we can sing and glorify God for that Redeemer. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let's go to the last one. Transformed and transported. 
think that's the last hymn, verse in the hymn that Kevin was leading there just a minute ago. But I want us to look to go home tonight. I want us to look at a few things that the end of our life holds for us. We're going to look at what they are. I'll have some verses. We may not read all of them, but if you want to jot them down, you're welcome to as well. One, Jesus will return. We read about that in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We read how Jesus will return for us. Then we've already talked about how that Jesus was that wonderful Savior, right? That Jesus came to this earth, lived, and died for us. And that could be the end of the story, but that doesn't really do anything for anybody that would come later. Might have been okay for those people right then. But we read that Jesus will return for us. Number two, the dead shall be raised. Now, I don't know how you could figure this out. Mathematically, there's a way. Statistically, there's a way. But from the day Jesus died, what how many people have died since then? We'd have to figure out what the world's population is. And you'd have to maybe know what the world's population has been throughout time. And you'd have to factor in how many people would have... It'd be really hard to know, right? But they've all died. So everybody from AD 33 to 2023, they've all died. Now, what we read in John 5, 28 and 29, that those dead shall be raised. The odds are that we, basing it on what we've seen for the last couple thousand years... We'll probably be dead too. But we don't know that. Jesus could come at any time. But the odds are, based on what all those other billions of people have experienced, we'll probably be dead too. But it's comforting to know that the dead shall be raised. So Jesus returned. The dead shall be raised. And then Jesus would bring those with him. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 14. But what about those who are alive. What if Jesus comes this evening? Ever thought about that? That was something that I seemed to think about a lot when I was little. I don't know why. I guess the preacher when we were growing up used to talk about that quite a bit. But I would always think about it. It seemed like they would mention it on Sunday morning. It's like, we'll be come back tonight at 6.30 unless the Lord comes. And I just remember thinking while I'm watching football on Sunday afternoon, what if the Lord comes? I guess we won't have church tonight. That was the thought that would cross in my head. But it seems like as I got older, I don't really think about that as much. But I think I was probably better when I was younger considering that, right? Because now that I'm older, it's not happened. You can figure out the math on me. I just turned 42. So 42 times 3. There's been a lot of days that Jesus didn't come. We get a little complacent, right? Get a little lackadaisical on that uh, as well. But what about those who are alive at that time. What if Jesus does come right now? Well, we have some scripture that talks about that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of the Lord, of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, that's Paul writing to the Thessalonians 20 or 30 years after Jesus had died. And what Paul is writing about here is to a people who thought Jesus would come back almost immediately. But he didn't come back almost immediately. 
And so now there's this sort of lackadaisical complacency that had settled upon him. And what Paul is telling them is that you have to be ready and this is what it's going to be like. But none of the people that he wrote to ever experienced that. They're all in that group in the ground that we talked about. Paul's there too. All these people have since died. But somebody somewhere is going to be alive when Jesus comes again. And we have the description of what that would be like. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 52 and 53 says that we will be changed. Right? Well, there will be something different about us when this happens. For some of us, we might say, well, I'm looking forward to a change. It's the first step to losing weight or whatever it might be. But there's going to be some kind of change there in us. The change is that we shall be like him. Now, I know I've asked a question similar similar to this before. But if I were to give you a blank sheet of paper, and we'll just assume your art skills are better than mine. If I were to give you a blank sheet of paper and say, draw what you think God looks like. I'd probably get 25 different drawings right here, right? We have this image of what we think God would look like. But Moses, in Exodus there, didn't get to see it, right? And we talked about on Wednesday night with the transfiguration that Peter and Andrew and John, what happened when they, they, they were sort of blinded by that as well. So whatever we say is just a guess for us. We would compare it to maybe a king or somebody that was extremely rich or something like that. That's what we would draw it as if we were to do that. We don't know what it is, but we can see right here, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, that we shall be like him. So I don't know, but I'm going to be changed, and then I should be like God as well. So whatever it is that I look like, whatever it is that I'm going to be like, whatever my celestial heavenly body is going to be like, it's going to be different. Okay? I don't know what to tell you on that. I said that about drawing your own picture because your picture is just as good as mine. I'd say I ever one of those people that have lived before have thought about that as well. We don't know what that's going to be like, but we know that we would be changed. But the last one, and perhaps the most important one, is we will be overwhelmed with joy in his coming. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 13 will tell us that. Next Sunday night, first Sunday night of the month, we'll be doing singing, and we're going to be talking about for the next few first Sunday nights, the fruits of the Spirit. And we talked about love last time, and this time it's about joy. And Tom's preparing a little something to say about joy during the middle of that. But we read here about being overwhelmed, overcome, just sort of taken aback by the amount of joy that we have. And there are times in our lives that we can maybe think about that And compare that to something. The time that you were overcome with joy. Maybe the most joyous time that you've ever experienced. Well, mine was probably on the morning. Actually, it was afternoon, I guess, about that. But April the 12th, 2011. That was when Will was born. And I actually remember when Will was born, after Mary had done all the work and I had done nothing to help, I just remember going out of the room and hugging mom and dad and Mary's mom. Not Mary's mom, she was in there. See, I don't remember that. I was overwhelmed. I wonder who that woman was that I hugged. Anyway, 
I just remember experience all of that sort of joy, right? Well, if we are going to be overwhelmed with joy at his coming, take whatever that is, whatever your Will's birth story is. It might be the birth of your child, or it might be something great that's happened for you, and multiply it by an infinity number, right? Multiply it by something that you can't even begin to do the math on. That's what that'll be like. So if it was that good here, what will it be going forward? Well, that option is available to us only because Jesus came, lived, and died for us. And when Fanny Crosby wrote this song, I think what she is saying, a wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, is because he gives us that opportunity to experience those moments. I will never again get to experience the birth of will. We can celebrate it, but I won't experience it. But I know that whatever that most joyful thing is, that there's something sometime later coming for me that I can compare that to. And I think that's what she's talking about whenever she says a wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. And so I ask you tonight that if you're not prepared for that, If you're not ready for that, it may be before we get here on Wednesday night that this all happens. It may be another 2,000, 4,000, 4 million, 10 billion, 8 trillion years from now before it happens. But we're only promised, James said, just a brief moment, right? He said our life is like a vapor. It appears for a brief time and then vanishes away. We have to make sure that everything that God's done We've prepared our end of the deal for that as well so that when our vapor is gone, we know the joy that awaits us on the other side. If there's anything that we can do for you, whatever it is, as always, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.